From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. This is 1050 Basco. What was going on uh, was something that had really broad implications for how we think about social protest in Latin America and beyond. And I think this leads to another set of interesting questions, which is how and why we think about when and why mobilizations are successful. It's hard not to care about what's happening along our border. So I think we have a lot of questions to ask about why so many people are heading north. I think we know some of the answers. Erica Simmons is an associate professor of political science and international studies. Professor Simmons' research and teaching are motivated by her interest in contentious politics, especially in Latin America. On today's podcast, I'll ask Professor Simmons about her research and her experiences doing fieldwork in Mexico and Bolivia, examining when, how, and why social movements arise, and especially how leaders respond. These questions are at the heart of her book, Meaningful Resistance, Market Reforms, and the Roots of Social Protest in Latin America. So take a deep breath, keep your eyes up, and let's take a walk up Basco. Hi, Erica. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here today. Hi, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about my research and interests. Let's start out with you and how you came to be a political science professor. I see you went to Harvard as an undergrad. Was poli-sci always on your mind? Was that your major or did you have a different major? I was an undergraduate at Harvard. I actually majored in something called social studies, Mm. which is an interdisciplinary undergraduate major there, a combination of sociology, anthropology, economics, and political science. It challenged you to do political theory and to engage in statistics and to do a whole combination of things, which I really loved. But my thesis ended up being largely political science, sort of grounded in the literature of political science, which is what drew me to political Mm. science in the first place. I had questions about um, the environmental implications of the North American Free Trade Agreement and started to try and investigate and uncover what had been happening along the border around environmental cooperation around NAFTA. And I discovered mm-hmm. that the tools of political science were really what were going to help me answer some of those questions. So I did get my training as a political mm-hmm. scientist starting in my undergrad. Yeah, years. very cool. So you got that breadth and d- decided to narrow down. I did. I did. I My current work draws a ton on sociology. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think that I'm in direct conversation with sociologists. And in fact, might market myself and sometimes in places as a sociologist. Okay. Okay. But that early training and answering the questions that I was interested in as an undergraduate yeah. were really what drew me to political Very science. Very cool. Unlike our first two guests, I know you took some time off between undergrad and, and graduate school. Can you talk about that? I did. I took a long period of time off. Okay. Uh, and sometimes I look back and think that I wish I'd sort of ended up in political <laughs> science a little bit earlier. Um, but I think that time was really valuable for me. So the first thing I did was something that gave my parents small heart attack, I decided to take a full break. I had worked very hard as an undergraduate Uh and was pretty burnt out and exhausted. I was lived and breathed my senior thesis that senior year. So I moved to Colorado and waited tables and skied every day. Wow, ski bum, okay. I was, I was a ski bum and I loved it. I could not have enjoyed that time more. My parents sort of sat there going, oh my God, she's just graduated from Harvard and (laughs) she's waiting tables and skiing every day. 
But I knew that it was just mm-hmm. the break that I needed. And I went back pretty quickly to the things that interested And they had me. to have known that you were going to jump back in eventually. They did. In fact, there was a funny little pool among my friends in college about whether or not I was actually <laughs> going to make good on this promise. You took, did your undergraduate work at Harvard. Then you took some time off, Colorado, Mexico, consulting firm. Then you went to Harvard for your MPP. What led you to Chicago for your PhD? I got interested in Chicago for a couple of reasons. Uh, One was that they had a woman there named Lisa Wedeen, who studies the Middle East, but whose work I just thought was exceptional. I had read Lisa's book, Ambiguities of Domination, which analyzes a cult around Hafiz al-Assad in Syria. And I just thought it was extraordinary. And I looked at it and thought that this was the kind of political Mm -hmm. science work I wanted to do. I went to Chicago for their sort of meet and greet for graduate students who'd been admitted and I hit it off with Lisa. I thought she was exceptional, and it was pretty clear to me that she was someone with whom I really wanted to work Mm -hmm. for my PhD. The other piece of the decision, and I think it's important to include this because there are things out there in your life beyond all of the choices we make that are focused on academics. My parents lived in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and so I had a family reason to go. And choosing to go to graduate school near your family is really quite wonderful. So I both had an extraordinary person with whom I really wanted to work. And I had this lovely chance to go back and be pretty close to yeah, my wow. parents for a while. Sounds like it was the perfect opportunity. <laughs> it was indeed. And I, and I absolutely loved it. So after Chicago, you headed north. What led you to Wisconsin? I did. Well, I had this incredible opportunity at international, with international studies here. My work is inherently interdisciplinary. I care about questions, are informed by a variety of different disciplines. And Wisconsin was looking to hire for someone to teach international studies. And this meant that I could both join an extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars, but also continue to pursue some Mm -hmm. of my interests that are more grounded in interdisciplinary questions through my teaching. So that was a particularly exciting opportunity. So yeah, let's move into some of your teaching and research interests. As we noted, you're interested in contentious politics and interpretive qualitative methods. Let's start with contentious politics. When I hear the term contentious politics, I think of the kind of partisan back and forth that seems to define politics in the U.S. today, with nobody agreeing with anyone else, everyone making up their own facts, and everyone unwilling to compromise. But I'm pretty sure that's not what contentious politics, as you study, means at all. Can you give us your definition? Yeah, so contentious politics is one of these terms that we come up with in the social (laughs) sciences that's to me meant to talk about a very specific kind of behavior in politics. And I actually get this question a lot when, you know, sort of over yeah, the, the dinner table I'm at curious. Thanksgiving from cousins and aunts and uncles. <laughs> They're like, contentious politics, but all politics is contentious. And I'm like, yes, uh, that's all right. But. but what we do when we study contentious politics, and there are a number of different definitions that a number of different scholars are thrown around, at its most basic form, it's when we study things that are happening outside of the regular institutional channels of politics. Okay. It's things that are happening through mass mobilization and protest, through mm. riots, through protests that evolve into becoming revolutionary episodes. So are things that, that you don't pursue change through the ballot box mm-hmm. or through the regular institutions that you might use in terms of going through, say, um, political bureaucracy to get something done. Instead, it's really... When people mobilize in some form in the streets, in public, um, to affect change. Sure. Yeah. This alternative methods for political change. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Great. So let's talk about your book, uh, Meaningful Resistance, Market Reforms, and the Roots of Social Protest in Latin America. 
So you mentioned before that you were in Mexico. You did some research in Mexico and Bolivia. Can you give us just a general picture of what that was like? Well, I first became interested in the questions that are at the center of the book when I was teaching a class at Harvard. I was a teaching assistant, and we read an article on the Bolivian water wars. There were these protests in Cochabamba, Bolivia, to protest against the privatization of the local water supply. And I became totally obsessed with this particular movement. I thought it was fascinating. All these questions about why it happened and who was involved. And I really wanted to explain what was going on. And so I entered the PhD program at Chicago sort of with this particular event in the back of my mind, something that I was interested in. And I went on to then try and explore the protests in a book and discovered that, in fact, what was going on uh, was something that had really broad implications for how we think about social protest in Latin America and beyond in terms of engaging with questions around how and when and why people protest against market reforms that affect subsistence goods, so goods that are at the center of daily life and practice that we might need to survive. Why do people protest these goods Mm -hmm. and what do these protests look like? So I used, I was able to use the research in Bolivia and Mexico to make this much broader argument about subsistence resources and what happens when they get marketized and the kinds of protests that then result. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm interested in the nitty gritty of your research in Mexico. How do you gather data? Are you on the streets interviewing protesters? Are you, you know, where are you living? What can you give us some of that detail? So for the Mexico research, I spent about six months in Mexico interviewing activists, so the people who had participated in the research, doing archival work, so going through newspaper coverage of the protests at the time, and also spending time actually going to meetings and attending protests that were happening when I was Mm, there that weren't the specific protests that I was studying, but it was the same set of activists organizing around a similar set of issues. And so it allowed me to get an on-the-ground feeling of what these kinds of protests look like. Um, and get a real feel for what the activists were up to. Now, part of the challenge of the work is that I involve questions around meaning making. So mm-hmm. this is about how actors make sense of their world. Gotcha. So it's not just about what they say yeah. when they say it, but about understanding what they mean to be saying uh, when they say those things. Okay. Right. So it's not just if you tell me you were at a certain place at a certain time and this is what you said or did. I want to understand the sort of next layer about what's going on. And that requires an extra level of work. So Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time looking at meaning-making practices around corn and tortillas. So I look at protests very specifically around rising tortilla prices. I wanted to understand the meanings that corn and tortilla took on for people in the Mexican context. So part of what I did was spend a lot of time thinking about how do people talk about corn? Yeah. How do they talk about tortillas? What do they symbolize in their daily life beyond simply something that you eat as part of your daily routine to keep you alive? Would it matter if you were eating tortillas or if you were eating bread? Well, yes, it matters enormously. And why and how? And so I also was really interested in investigating those kinds of questions to try to better understand the role that meanings of tortillas. So what tortillas meant to Mexicans in that context, what role that played in the protests. Wow. All right. That's great. So how did you pick who you interviewed and thus did that affect the data that you then collected? Mm -hmm. So it does affect the data. It's enormously important to think about how you choose who you're interviewing. With this kind of work, we don't think about finding representative samples. I know that's very important in lots of kinds of political science research. For this kind of data, 
thinking about your sample in terms of it being representative is not mm-hmm. necessarily what you're going for. Gotcha. So I engaged in something that we call snowball sampling, which is a, a not so fancy term for basically saying that you talk to someone and you see who else they recommend uh, that you talk to. Okay. Now, I start with, of course, an understanding of these protests, who the leaders were, who was involved, which organizations. And so I knew where to start with asking the questions in terms of the key players. And I wanted to make sure that I talked to all of the key Mm -hmm. players. And for the Mexican protests and for the Bolivian protests, that meant that I could identify a number of organizations, Mm -hmm. unions, campesino organizations in Mexico in particular, civil society organizations. I could figure out who was running them and then ask them who the key people were that were involved in the protests at the time. But then I also wanted to talk to people who weren't necessarily activists, people who joined the protests who didn't have a long history of being involved in protest activities. And there I went to a couple of neighborhoods that were centers of protest activity. I knocked on a lot of doors Mm -hmm. and saw who would talk to me. And I was just as interested in people who were participating in the protests as those who weren't. Yeah getting a sense of what it meant to them to go out to protest that day. If they chose not to protest, why? Talk to them about the role that tortillas played in their life. Um, So, yeah, I engaged in this sort of snowball sampling idea, but I also did some basic door knocking. Can you talk about how this experience would be different than, say, knocking on doors in Madison? How outside your comfort zone was this? It is not the most comfortable thing to do (laughs) when you are a scholar, Some people, I think, find it easier than others. For me, I had to take a lot of deep breaths, particularly beginning, psych myself up for it and say, (laughs) you can do this. It's very hard to knock on the door of strangers. What types of training is it important for people to have that are looking to do this type of research? One of the first things is you need to speak the language. Mm -hmm. I was fluent in Spanish when I was in the field. It's getting a little rusty now that I haven't been back for a year or so, but Fluency in a language is really important, particularly if you want to do the kind of interpretive work that I do, where you're not just taking the answer at face value, but you're trying to understand what people mean to be saying when they say what they say. Then it's not so easy to do interviews. You now know this. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Firsthand. (laughs) You have to develop skills in terms of how to put your interviewees at ease, how to ask questions that are going to elicit the kind of information that you're interested in but also allow space for your interviewees to talk about things that might take you down paths that are interesting to you that you never would have known to ask about. So figuring out that balance is extremely difficult. And if you're going to do this kind of interview work, you need training. And I think this is one of those things that happens in many of the social sciences where people look at qualitative research like this and just think they can go into the field, sit down with people with a list of questions, and get their interview work done. And in fact, it's a skill that you need to develop and work on and practice before you go to the field so that when you get there, you're able to, to conduct the kind of interviews that you want. Uh, so, I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> so it's very hard to figure out how to do well, and training is extremely important. Okay, so how did this unplanned trip to Mexico affect the argument of your book? When market reforms, so free trade, privatization, these kinds of reform efforts, when they affect subsistence goods, Mm -hmm. so goods that are at the center of daily life and practice, you're more likely to get broad-based, widespread mobilization than you would otherwise. And this is because these kinds of goods, things like tortillas in Mexico or water in the Cochabamba context, which Mm -hmm. we can talk about a little bit more, take on meanings beyond their material value. So they come to symbolize community, 
what we call imagined communities. Mm -hmm. So these are communities of nation or region, communities where you don't know and interact directly with every member, right? But you imagine yourselves to be part of this broader community. And also what I call quotidian communities. So these are communities where, in fact, you do know and interact daily, monthly, weekly with the people who are part of them. So my, I argue that these kinds of goods take on these kinds of community-related meanings. And so when they're threatened by markets, people perceive them as threats not just to their pocketbooks, but also to their sense of self hmm. and to their sense of community. So you'll get this kind of broad-based mobilization because, again, it's not just going to be people who are uh, feeling like they're materially threatened by them, but those who might think that maybe their sense of Mexicanness is at stake if affording tortillas more broadly is something that's being threatened. So the vagaries and vicissitudes of markets then tap into these community-related meanings. This is an argument that I could not have made without the Mexican case. Had I just gone to Bolivia and done the work in Bolivia, I'm imagining that what the dissertation and then the book would have looked like would have been something very specific about water, that I would have been able to make arguments about imagined and quotidian communities around water in Cochabamba and how water symbolized those kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. But it's only through the addition of the Mexican case that I can develop a broader argument about subsistence resources generally, which then I think can travel much more broadly. The insights about water in Bolivia would have been important, but I wouldn't have been able to step back and make this broader theoretical claim around gotcha, subsistence. Gotcha. So do you think any of the theoretical arguments from your book translate to what we see in the U.S.? Yeah, I think there are definitely insights from the book that you can pick up and see how they might fit in the U.S. context. I wouldn't pick up the entire argument start to finish mm -hmm. and try and move it to mobilizations in the United States. But the first move that I think we need to make when we think about the arguments I'm making in the United States is to think more locally. I think it's hard to think about things that work to generate imagined and certainly quotidian communities in the United States across the entire country. Mm -hmm. So I would want to start by thinking locally. And one of the places to start is to think about some recent mobilization, say Standing Rock, mm. and that the protests in Standing Rock are not just about water as a material resource, but water is very much a symbolic resource in those protests. And so while I think my argument doesn't pick up and travel precisely to Standing Rock, mm -hmm. there are elements of the theoretical claims that I make about how we need to understand goods like water or corn as meaning much more than what we understand them to be materially, particularly when, we under, under, when we're looking at the link between them and protests. Mm -hmm. So I have two cases of social mobilization, uh, one in Mexico and one in Bolivia. Do you see them as successful or not? So it's a very complicated question, in part because figuring out how we evaluate success when we study mobilizations mm -hmm. is extremely complex. Sure. A lot of people have seen the Bolivian mobilization as being one of success, right? I said earlier, it was heralded as one of the first victories against neoliberal market reforms. It did throw out the company that had come in to privatize water in Cochabamba, but the long-term trajectory of water in Cochabamba is still very complicated. And water provision there doesn't look how many Cochabambans I think we're hoping it might. Now, the Mexican case looks a little bit different, and I would say that is more clearly a case where the mobilization was not that successful. Mm. We start, saw short-term mobilization where people took to the streets, and the government moved in very quickly to try and assure the public that they were going to take care of this problem. And I think this leads to another set of interesting questions, which is how and why we think about when and why mobilizations are successful. 
there are lots of potential ways to think about this. And again, it gets complicated in terms of how we think about success. So one of the questions I've become really interested in is why and how do states respond to social movements in the ways that they do? Because mm. I think that's an important factor in whether or not a movement becomes successful. Definitely. Right? We want to look at the interplay between protesters and their targets. Sure. Often states, also corporations. But mm -hmm. for now, I'm thinking about states in particular. And so I'm now interested in asking some of these questions about the same mobilizations that I study in the first book, which we've talked about, in another book where I look at and ask questions around why and how did the Bolivian authorities and the Mexican authorities respond so differently to the protests that they saw? So I think these are super interesting questions. I'm just scratching the surface of yeah. trying to figure out what's behind it. But I think some of it has to do with stuff that goes back to the first book and meaning-making practices. So I ask questions about whether or not the authorities making decisions understood what was at stake for the protesters. And in the Mexican case, I think they really got that there was a sense of Mexicanness that was at stake here around a threat to tortilla. Okay. Whereas the Bolivian authorities were largely removed from the Cochabamban context hmm. and might not have understood the ways in which water was so much a part of daily life and practice and the construction of community in Cochabamba. So I think there's something going on there. And I'm excited to get to work on the next project and do some more thinking about how we understand the decisions that these policymakers are making in response to the protests in both cases. I am really excited to see what this data will show. Can you talk about being a methodologist, someone who cares and thinks very deeply and systematically about how we build knowledge? Absolutely. I got interested in qualitative methods as I was writing the dissertation. I found that the methods that I had learned in my graduate qualitative methods courses did not provide me with the tools that I wanted to have to answer the question that I was looking at. Okay. I got pushed in all kinds of directions about case selection. The cases mm. that I selected did not fit into the regular political science model of how we think about qualitative case selection. So I started to think, huh, I have something interesting to say. I know I do. Yeah. And I know I can say it with these cases. So what do I do? And I found that the methods literature came up short in terms of offering me a logic that I could use for why and how these cases could help advance knowledge. So this is how I got interested in methods. Yet another time of, or an example of when taking a step back and looking at that broader picture has helped you narrow down what you're interested in. And Yeah, I think that's right. It's been really exciting for me and really fun for me to take a step back and look across political science to see who's engaging in comparisons that don't follow these logics that were taught mm -hmm. in graduate school. And lo and behold, it's all kinds of extraordinary senior scholars who essentially did their initial work engaged in the kinds of comparisons were taught as graduate students, but then mm -hmm. went on in their second or third or fourth books to just throw all that stuff yeah. out the window. So it's been really fun to sort of push some really senior scholars Very cool. to think about why they can say what they can say to then empower graduate students and junior faculty to use those kinds of logics as well. Faculty in the poli-sci department are known for their teaching. You actually just recently won a campus-wide distinguished teaching award. Can you talk about some of your favorite aspects of teaching? Absolutely. I love teaching. I find my time in the classroom with students to be some of my most rewarding time as a political scientist. I teach a large Introduction to International Studies class. I share that responsibility with Stephen Young in geography and Scott Strauss, who's also in our department. And I have found that in spite of the size of this course, it is one of my absolute favorite classes to teach. It is so exciting to get a classroom of even 
you know, 300 students, but largely filled with freshmen. Mm -hmm. I love getting students when they have just arrived on campus and they are starting their freshman year. It's the fall semester. They're figuring out what college is all about, and they're eager and excited to be in the classroom. International Studies 101 is a chance for me to touch on a wide array of subjects, and I can't go into depth really all that much on Mm -hmm. any individual one, but I get to expose students to a way of thinking about things that they encounter in everyday life, in the news, hopefully at the dining room table with their families, and discuss regularly. I get to go through it with them and and expose them to ways of thinking through these kinds of issues with a social science framework, and that is really exciting. I find that I can see it in their faces when they're exposed to a new way of thinking about any number of questions. Students get to now engage with these questions with data and with arguments that are grounded in theoretical approaches to real-world issues. And I love seeing them empowering themselves to engage with these kinds of questions using data and grounding them in theoretical arguments. So I find IS 101 particularly exciting and inspirational. I also love teaching my upper-level classes, though, too. I have to give them a shout-out. My Intro to Contentious Politics class and my Introduction to Social Movements and Revolutions in Latin America. What... uh... What are the major issues affecting Latin America these days? It is an extremely interesting time to be studying Latin American politics. Um, Bolsonaro just won the election in Brazil, and that opens up a whole new set of questions about polarization in Latin America Mm -hmm. uh, and the rise of candidates that have been compared to Donald Trump in the United States. So we have international trends that are happening around the kinds of candidates that people are voting for, and this is a fascinating question to think about. We also have questions around immigration that I think are pressing and important. And as a Latin Americanist, it's hard not to care about what's Mm -hmm. happening along Mm -hmm. our border. So I think we have a lot of questions to ask about why so many people are heading north. And I think we know some of the answers. But we need to continue to think about the kinds of things that we can do in the United States to address some of these concerns and make sure that we are thinking systematically about the social science questions and the humanitarian questions at stake. Thanks, Erica. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate how not only in your research, but every aspect of your life, you have taken a step back and looked at that broader picture, which has helped you in the long run. And I think that that's something that all of us can take into our own lives and can see the world in a little bit different light. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. 